And now if you would, please turn with me to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John. And we're in chapter 3. The Gospel of John, chapter 3. And I'll be reading verses 9 through 15. The Gospel of John, chapter 3. Verses 9 through 15. I'll read through 9.17 this morning. Um, Excuse me, not that long. Through 3.17, not 9.17. 3.17. Hear the word of the Lord. Nicodemus answered and said to Jesus, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly I say to you, We speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If you have, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man, who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask now, Lord, for your assistance in uh, preaching the word. Help me to make it clear, to make it applicable. Be here by your spirit, Lord, and grant your people understanding. Grant those who do not know you wisdom now, redemption now, Lord, under the preaching of your most holy word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. We began to uh, look at this particular section, which is headed by Nicodemus's question. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and Jesus, in essence, communicates the necessity of the new birth. He says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus asks, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And then Jesus tells him the nature of this new birth, this birth from above. He said, you must be born of born of water and of spirit. Nicodemus, you need a spiritual regeneration. That's what you need. And then Nicodemus asks this question. How can these things be? How can it be? And as we saw last week, Jesus now uh, rebuked Nicodemus, beginning at verse 10. He rebuked Nicodemus because there was a sense of pride there. So he humbled his proud heart. Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Humbled him. He should have known. Next, he humbles him for rejecting Jesus' witness, which is something that's going to come up in our text today. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. 
He humbles him for rejecting his witness. And then lastly, he rebukes him. He humbles him for his slowness because Christ was explaining these things to him in very simple terms. What does Jesus say, beginning of verse 12? If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Nicodemus, I've explained this to you at a, at a most elementary level, and you are the teacher of Israel. These are things that you should have known and understood. And now Jesus does tell him heavenly things. Jesus does tell him heavenly things. Look at verse 13. Now he says to Nicodemus, he says, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. What's that doctrine? That's the incarnation. That's what he's talking to him about. He presents the incarnation to him. But not only does he present the incarnation, he also presents the purpose of the incarnation. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The purpose of the incarnation is the cross. I want to pick up by considering verse 12, right? Consider this verse well. Take our time to think about this. Excuse me, verse 13. In verse 12, Jesus says, How will you believe if I tell you spiritual things? How is, how is this related? He, Jesus is still answer, answering the question that Nicodemus posed, How can these things be? He just rebuked him three times before he gave him the answer. Well, oh, he did. Three rebukes. Are you not the teacher of Israel? I'm testifying these things to you. I've spoken to you in an earthly way, Nicodemus. He offers three rebukes. And now he's giving Nicodemus the answer. How can it be, Lord? How can it be that one can be born again? What? So uh, if you wanted to ask the question a different way, what is the cause of the new birth? How is it that this can be so? The sense of Nicodemus' question is this. He asks, how can one be born from above? How can one be born of water in the Spirit? So before answering the question, the Lord rebukes him, humbles his proud heart, humbles him for rejecting Jesus' witness, humbles him because of the explanation that Jesus gave, and now he gives him an answer. He does give him an answer. The incarnation and the crucifixion. That's it. That's how a person can be born again. Because of the incarnation and the crucifixion. Here, a particular aspect of the incarnation. Jesus is not so much focusing on the, the fullness of the doctrine of the incarnation. Of course, we looked at that in chapter 1. Um, uh, at some uh, for some time, but here in particular, what the incarnation does, which is a weird way of putting it, but in the incarnation, we receive 
the knowledge of God's will. Stated another way, just focusing on the incarnation, the incarnation is the highest point of redemptive revelation, of God revealing himself to man. It's the highest point. It's not the book of Revelation. That's not the highest point. The highest point of Revelation, the clearest picture of Revelation, right? The it's what's better than HD now? What's what Edgar? What four four K? It's four K. Better than four K. This is twelve K. You could you smell the guy's breath from the TV. This is the cl- the clearest possible revelation of God is in the incarnation. That's what Jesus says to him. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. I take that as the original reading. You you read your, your Bibles. Some of your Bibles may not have that. And what I would say to you is, so uh, I'm I'm not going to get into textual criticism here too much. But so, you know, I do my due diligence. I'm studying. Huh? Huh? It's on? Okay, hold on. All right, he's, I'm back on. Let me get back into my, <laughs> to my point here. Uh, and so one commentator, popular commentator, good commentator, evangelical commentator, says, yeah, um, one of the canons of uh, evangelical textual criticism is the harder reading is preferred above the simpler reading, right? And this is a hard reading. Because the Son of Man is in heaven, right? So that's the reading you should prefer. But he says, yeah, but we shouldn't prefer this reading because, you know, the hardest, harder reading is not always the best reading. But I thought that was one of your rules. Anyways, I think this is the way the text should read, and that's the way I'm going to interpret the text. If I have told you, oh, excuse me, uh, verse 13, no one has ascended to heaven. But he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, who is in heaven. So how, how do we understand what Jesus is saying here? Let me, let me put it this way. Jesus isn't saying that somebody went up to heaven to find stuff out and came back down to earth. That's not his point. That's, not, that's, not, uh, that's really not even how the Greek reads. I think the word ascend messes us up. Because when we think ascend, we think of the ascension. And he's not talking about the ascension. He's talking about the, um, he's not talking about the ascension. He's talking about his descent, his coming down. So you could, you could let me, uh, two ways you can interpret, uh, translate this uh, verse. One way is like this. No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the son of man has come down from heaven. You see the difference there, right? Is that nobody's gone, ever gone up there to talk to God and then come back down to tell us what God said. That's his point. Or you could read it this way. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven. Right? One commentator puts it like this, uh, helpful. John insists that no one has ascended to heaven in such a way as to return to talk about heavenly things. But Jesus can speak of heavenly things, not because he ascended to heaven from a home on earth and then descended 
to tell others of his experience, but because heaven was his home in the first place. And therefore, he has inherently the fullness of heavenly knowledge. Everything we need to know about God is revealed in Christ. That, that's the point of that uh, verse. I think that's the best way to understand it. Jesus is saying that no man has gone up to heaven to bring down heavenly things. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, there's some places that, there, there are several places in the New Testament, in the old, excuse me, Old Testament, where this idea is conveyed. And then some references in John. Let's take a look at some of those. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 12, you have this idea conveyed. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 12. And Paul actually picks this up in Romans. We won't look at it in Romans. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 12. Um, Moses writes, don't ask this question. Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Uh, he, uh, Moses tells the people, don't ask that question because the word of faith is, is not word of faith movement, but the word that you ought to believe is present with you now. So what Jesus isn't doing in light of passages like this is saying, well, the Bible wasn't clear, so I had to come down from heaven to make the Bible clear. No, R remember, following verse 13 is verse 14. And you have a little conjunction, junction, what's my function, hooking up clauses and phrases, right? So it's, it's, there's a connection here. It's not that the word wasn't clear, but that, with with the greatest clarity, God's redemption comes in the flesh, right? in the person of Christ. So this question was asked. The emphasis, of course, is on Christ's coming. He comes to give the answer to the longing questions posed in the Old Testament. Isaiah asks it this way. Listen to how Isaiah asks this question. This is in Isaiah 40, 13 through 14. Isaiah 40, 13 through 14. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has taught him. With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him? And taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? No one. That's the answer. No one could ever direct the Spirit of God. He needs no teacher or guide. He is omniscient and omnisapient. Right? Omnisapient is all wise and uh, he's all wise. He doesn't need anybody to give him any direction or any instruction. His will has been revealed to his people. And then finally, in these last days, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, 
John writes this in, in uh, uh, John 1.18 where he says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the Father's bosom, he has declared him. He has, and the word there uh, is he's exegeted God. That's the word where we get exegesis from, which means to draw out, to teach, to explain. He explained God to us. On the other hand, we are the ones who are in need of direction. We need a sure guide to heaven. In all, in all of our sin and depravity, we are lost. And we have lost all of our sense of direction. We are stupefied by our perversity. No concourse to heaven is evident to us in and of ourselves. None. With Agur in Proverbs, we should say this, for surely I am more stupid than any man. And do not have the understanding of a man. I neither learned wisdom nor have known, nor have knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Right? He's asking this question. It's in a book of wisdom. He needs wisdom. And he's saying, who's gone up there? Who's come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Nobody can do that. Who has bound the waters in a garment? Can't do that. Who has established the end from the beginning? Interesting here what he asks. What is his name? And what's his son's name, if you know? Paul would grab Agor and say, his name is Jesus. He is the one who was in heaven. He is the one who can gather the wind in his fists. He can wake up in a boat and say, stop blowing. And it stops. He's the one who can say to water in the Old Testament, separate, stand up in a line so my people can walk through. Not only can he do that, but he comes to earth to reveal the Father's will to his people. As John the Baptist says in this same chapter, John chapter 3, he says, He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. Why? Because they must be born again. The necessity of the new birth. And then the nature of the new birth, which men become a new creation. Verse 16 is a a restatement, in essence, of verses 13, 14, and 15. That's all it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What is John saying there? The son was in heaven. He came to earth because God loved the world. It's, it's just a restatement. So what, um, let, let me read verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
So you have the love of God, the gift of God, and the purpose of God, that whoever believes in him should not perish, and then the result, everlasting life. Those four things in verse 16. And that's exactly what Jesus is now. He's talking to Nicodemus about heavenly things. He's revealing to Nicodemus, if you want to know the will of God and understand heaven, look to the Son. What was prohibited to others is provided for in the Son. When we come to the Scriptures, we, we have to, when we're hearing preaching, you're, you're reading books on theology, you have to forget the instrument and look to the person. You have to listen for Christ, right? Preaching, well, I loved, I think it was Spurgeon. He had it on his pulpit. And it was when the Greeks come, and they come to Nathaniel, and they say to him, we would see Jesus. And then he takes them in to see Jesus. And that should be the, the, the primary purpose of preaching. I alliterated there. You saw that? And that should be the primary purpose of preaching, is so that people would behold Jesus. And it's not just talking about Jesus, but applying Jesus. The reason why some of you are sitting here today and you don't know the gospel is because you don't know Christ. And I don't mean like um, uh, you don't know facts about his person, but you don't really understand his love for sinners. Like you don't get that. That he would leave his home in heaven to walk in this sinful world, to die for sinners. Not only to die for sinners, but you think he was the one who gave the law on Mount Sinai, and he comes and he is a, becomes obedient to that law. Why? So that I might have a righteousness before God. So his love is displayed in his death. His love is displayed even in his living, in his life, how he lived I needed righteousness, and Christ comes into the world and is subject to the law so that I might be righteous before God. I should be punished for my sins, yet Christ comes into the world and he dies for my sin. I need a new life. I ought to die and be judged so Christ is in the grave for three days. Christ bursts forth in new life. Why? Because I needed new life, and he makes me a new creation in union with him. But since I remain in this world, once I'm saved, right, I have to battle against sin, against the flesh, against the devil. I have this war to wage. So what does Jesus do? Does Jesus ascend into heaven and then go play with the angels? No, he intercedes for me even now so that when I pray, he hears me and he's there before the presence of the Father as the Father's glory and as my representative and he pleads for me. All of these things Christ does for sinners and the unconverted person and maybe even the, the genuine Christian who lacks assurance and is not able rightly to battle with sin, they don't understand that Christ is for them. Christ is for you. We must remember this. You see, the first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Heaven was his palace. It was his abode. He'd, no sin, no, right, no unrighteousness. 
the, the worship of angels. And what does he do? He comes into this sin-forsaken world and dies for sinners. He is the light of the world, the Lord Jesus. And then, so he, this is the one who comes to reveal these things. He comes to reveal the love of God. That's what he does for his people. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He comes in his person. That is the Son of Man who is in heaven. First, he calls himself the Son of Man. We looked at this term in chapter 1. John the Baptist uses it. And it focuses on Christ's humanity, and particularly that his humanity conceals his divinity. It's one of the titles that he uses. And in the gospel, in particular, in the synoptic gospels, it's the term that he uses the most to address, to talk about himself. He is the Son of Man. The Son of Man is, is a, uh, it's a, a bit of a tricky term because um, it's used of prophets in the Old Testament. And when you hear it, of course, if you don't have theological background, you think he's the son of a man. And I think that might be purposeful why Jesus speaks that way. But if you have a theological grasp, you know this term comes from Daniel chapter 7, and the son of man is actually divine. So he uses this to conceal his divinity, but then look at what he says. The son of man is on earth and is in heaven. A few weeks ago, we talked about the immensity of God, the infinity of God, God's omnipresence. Jesus is ascribing this attribute of God to himself. Um, John Gill puts it this way. He says, by the virtue of the personal union of the two natures in the Redeemer, he speaks these words. He's the God-man. He is all of God, and he came into the world to reveal God, to reveal the love of God for his people. So the incarnation, and particularly this purpose of revealing God, of revealing God, and, and, verse 14, no one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And now let me tell you the, the sum and substance of all of the Bible. All of the prophets in the Old Testament, all of the narratives, all of the institution, all every single point of history in the Old Testament, every jot, every tittle of it was talking about this the death of the Son of God, all of it. From the first animal, right, that was sacrificed to clothe Adam and Eve, that was pointing to the cross. When God said, gave, he, in, in, he gave a promise in the form of judgment, when he said, he will crush your head, you will bruise his heel, he was talking about the Son of God. All of redemptive history is pointing to the cross. So what God, what, uh, God the Son does is he picks a symbol he picks one symbol out of the Old Testament. 
and it's the lifted serpent. You know, if, if, um, if you don't like typology, <laughs> you don't like the way Jesus interprets the Old Testament. <sighs> because that's what Jesus does here. As and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Three things. First, the symbol. Next, the manner. And then the fruit. So the symbol of the crucifixion, the manner of the crucifixion, and then the fruit of the crucifixion. This is like a whole nother sermon. I'm, not, I'm laughing, but I'm serious. This, the symbol, right, is the serpent. And you would think to yourself, why in the world would he pick a serpent to be the symbol of redemption? Why would he do that? So in Numbers chapter 21, uh, the Jewish people are complaining. They're sick of manna, right? It's, it's cake from heaven, right? And it's like healthy for you. It's, it's all we've been asking for for decades now, right? It's God's given it's cake from heaven. It falls out of the sky like snow. And they gather it up and they eat this stuff and it's delicious, and they're tired of it. And we're, uh, humans are very ungrateful. We're very ungrateful. You think about, you, you, yeah, I'm going to joke a little bit here. You think about how we devalue toilet paper, but right now it's the most important thing on this planet. We are so ungrateful. There's old ladies fighting in Walmart for toilet paper right now. But God is providing and sustaining the people in the wilderness. They call the food useless, basically. So what does he do? God sends serpents to punish the people. And the, the serpents are poisonous. So they're biting the people, and the people are dying. And, the Moses, and then the people come to Moses. And they're begging and pleading with Moses to save them. And then the Lord gives the, the, the remedy, right? This is what you're going to do. This is what you're going to do. You're going to take a bronze snake. And you're going to lift it on a pole. And whoever looks at the bronze snake is going to be healed. And the serpent represents these serpents, looked like him. So that's what happens, and the people are healed. One of the characteristics of the serpents was that it was uh, uh, that they were poisonous. But the serpent on the pole wasn't poisonous. It was actually the antidote. But it was a symbol of the poison. It was one of the snakes. 
That's what they were looking at. When they looked at the snake, it didn't become something else. The snake on the pole looked like their judgment for their ungratefulness. You get it already, right? So Christ did not have sin. He was not, he, he, he was not bitten by the serpent. That poison was not coursing through his veins. But he did take the likeness of sinful flesh. He came as a man from heaven, although he was God. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And therefore Christ looked to us like any other man. Not only did he look like every other man, but his punishment is the poison that every man deserves. And when we look to him on the cross, we are healed. So, text we can go through, but that in essence is what the symbol means. The, the, the punishment that I deserve is held up. And if I look to the one punished for me, I'm saved. I don't get that. Second, he's lifted up. Even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Do you think that Christ wished to die that way? That the Son of God, holy, sinless, and undefiled, deserved and desired the death of a criminal. That's what he was given. To, to be lifted up, basically naked, beaten to a pulp, For what end? So that men might look to the cross. You see, people make fun of the cross, right? You ever seen that, right? Little memes or stupid things. People say, why are you wearing a plus sign on your neck? And it's not, Christians don't worship a cross. But what the cross reveals to us, one, the kind of crosses we have don't have a savior on them. It's because he's raised from the dead. But what the cross reminds us of is the punishment that we rightfully deserve. A punishment that God hides. God hides it. He covers it with the blood of his son. But his son was lifted up in shame. Jesus was exalted in humility, in, excuse me, in humiliation. God lifts him up. And he's shamed. His death on the cross, his lifting up, was a trumpet. Look at what happens to those who believe in God. 
Yet at the same time, it's what we are to look at. So Paul, in rebuking the Galatians, he says to them, who has bewitched you? That you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. That's how he was presented. He didn't, he wasn't, Jesus wasn't presented as like a lumberjack. You know, strong, powerful, big beard, muscles, tats, smoking cigars, drinking whiskey, riding a motorcycle. That wasn't him. A broken body, bloody, hanging in shame. That's what we presented to you. Because that's what you deserve. And God shows that forth. Chrysostom writes this. Do you see the relationship of the type to the reality? There, at the serpent, the Jews escaped death. But temporal. Here, believers, eternal There, the hanging serpent healed the bites of serpents. Here, the crucified Jesus cursed the wounds inflicted by the spiritual dragon. There, he who looked with his bodily eyes was healed. Here, he who beholds with the eyes of his understanding puts off all his sins. There, that which hung was a brass fashioned into the likeness of a serpent. Here, it was the Lord's body built by the Spirit. There, a serpent bit and a serpent healed. Here, death destroyed and death was ravished. But the snake which destroyed had venom. That which saved was free from venom. And so again was it here. For death which slew us had sin with it, as the serpent had venom. But the Lord's death was free from all sin, as the brazen serpent from venom. Beautifully put. Christ lifted up before all men. That, that's what we should want, right? So when we spend time together, what, what should we be talking about? I, I would like to talk about the lifting up of the Son of God. Spend time meditating upon the graces that come to us because of the Son. Yes, but let's talk about the Son. Let's fix our eyes upon the Son. Let's preach and teach about the Son. Let's talk to other people about the Son. And now, what, what is the result? Right? What, what happens? That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The, the, the life of the age to come. That's what he's saying here. That is the result of everyone who looks to Jesus. You have eternal life. You look to the serpent, you are healed. In this world, you look to the Son of God, you are healed from all your sin. You are freed from the poison of sin and you receive life eternal. So, Nicodemus How can these things be? God will send his son from heaven to die a miserable death so that you might be recipients of the new birth. Nicodemus, that's how a person is saved, by looking to the son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
for this time together. We thank you for the lifting up of your son. And I pray that we as a people in our preaching, in our teaching, in our singing, in our praying, we would lift up the son, our mediator. May he be the object of all of our praise and worship. May we look to him often. May we look to him carefully. May we look to him with love and joy in our hearts that he would go to the cross in obedience that we might be justified and pardoned for all of our sins. In his name we pray, amen. Please stand and sing with me.